0: Amen. Thank you, Sarah. I ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter five. We're going to start a new series this morning. We'll continue it tonight for the next uh, nine messages on restoring New Testament Christianity. It's a study in the Beatitudes, Matthew five one through twelve, and and I don't know of a study that has rattled my cage more uh, than this study and it made me realize some things more than in the time that I have been studying this passage and reading and commentaries and about anything I could get my hands on to help me to understand these powerful statements from the lips of our Lord. The first message is entitled, New Testament Christians, Listen to Jesus. That would seem to be obvious, but in fact, sometimes we need to be reminded that Jesus said that we don't always hear well. You see, I'm responsible for not only for what I hear, but I'm responsible for what I would have heard if I had been listening. That means I'm responsible for those messages when I was a teenage boy and I was madly in like with puppy love that was real to the puppy with this girl that I was sitting by in church thinking that, oh, my life revolves around her, when in reality it didn't revolve around her, but I missed some sermons during that time because I was in other places mentally. I know none of you have ever done that. <laughs> you see, we're not responsible just for what we hear, but for what we would have heard if we had been listening, not only to the voice of the preacher or the teacher, but to the voice of the Holy Spirit that's trying to speak to us. And so I want to begin reading in Matthew 5 and verse 1. When he saw the crowds, he went up to the mountains, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Someone has suggested that sermons ought to be rated like movies, that they ought to be G-rated sermons. You know, those are the kind where the preacher kind of talks in soft little flowery words and everybody stands at the back door waiting to shake hands and say, Pastor, that was such a sweet sermon. That was so, That just, that was just, it made me think of a walk through Callaway Gardens, just (laughs) the flowers and the butterflies and... I'm so glad we're going to save the trees and, and the earth and the environment. It's just so sweet. Then there are people that say there ought to be PG-rated sermons. And those are sermons where the pastor kind of gets down a little bit, and then somebody comes up and says, you know, I didn't like that point. I just didn't like what you said. Well, you know, I didn't mean to offend you. And if it hurts you, I'll try not to ever say that again. Because if it's offensive, we want to back away from it. And make sure we get it down to a G-rated sermon so everybody's happy. Then there are R-rated sermons. R-rated sermons are kind of that in-your-face, this is what the God's Word says. God didn't tell us that it was going to be politically correct. God didn't tell us it was going to be culturally acceptable. God didn't tell us it was going to be easy, but this is the way it is. This is life. Learn to live it. Then there are X-rated sermons. X-rated sermons are like the sermons that Amos preached. Amos stood before the people of God and said, You're in trouble, and I'm here to tell you, and there's nothing you can do to get out of it. Well, when I study the Beatitudes, it looks on the surface like a G-rated sermon. But in reality, it's an X-rated sermon. Because Jesus is saying in non-negotiable terms, this is what the Christian life is supposed to look like. This is not an ideal, this is not a goal, this is not a theory, it's not a philosophy, this is it. This is life as I intended it to be. And so I want you to to look at the power behind these principles as we get in this introductory message in this series. There's, There's a power behind it, and it is the power to live life at the highest possible level. Let me tell you what the power is. The power behind the principles is the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't just preach a sermon and say, now, you folks go out and live this way. He lived the Beatitudes that he taught. He was poor in spirit. He was a peacemaker. He was gentle. He did respond properly when people persecuted him and spoke evil against him. Everything that Jesus says in these verses is powerfully backed up by his life on earth. What he's telling us here is how we become and act like children of the king. Warren Risby's book, which is now out of print, is called Live Like a King on the Beatitudes. And in there he talks about the fact that as children of God, God has made us a kingdom of priests and he has made us people who can live in the kingdom of heaven on earth as reigning with Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this is not some theory that just is a little ideal floating out there. There's a power behind this to have this kind of faith, this kind of maturity, to walk with God on this level. And and the problem is most of us live on such a secondary level in our faith. Uh, we, We live hoping for an experience. or or we hope that there'll be something that will give us goosebumps, or or something that will uh, magically take us to another level in our relationship with God. Uh, we, We live longing for some event, some person, some concert, some seminar that we can go to, and all of a sudden everything clicks and our life is together. We finally got our life together. We finally got our act together. But that's not what Jesus is teaching here. In fact, what he's teaching here is a lifelong process of learning how to live your life in light of these Beatitudes. Now, it's in your notes, and I want you to follow along in Matthew 5.1 in the message. I love the the, It's a loose translation. Uh, It's not a paraphrase. It's a loose translation, but I love Eugene Peterson's The Message. He's just come out with all the Old Testament prophets, and if you want to read something that's biting... Uh, you read Eugene Peterson's translation to the prophets because he didn't pull any punches. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed the hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. Now notice three times that word climb or climbing is in those two verses. These are truths for people that want to move forward. These are not for people that want to live on the flatlands and coast along and and glide along until they get into heaven. These are truths for people that want to move and progress in their faith with Jesus Christ. We are to be his climbing companions. And he says he had this huge crowd following him, but he climbed up a hillside... You can still go to that mountain today, the Mount of the Beatitudes. It's not a mountain, it's just a steep hill. You you can still go there, and he climbed up there, and the people that joined him climbing up there, he taught them these things. Now, I'm sure there were some down there, they they were probably Baptists. They were down at the bottom, and says, well, when when he gets through this little excursion, I'll I'll see what he's got to say. I'll I'll see if I can get the cliff notes on this one. The cliff notes on this one would be real short. Notice what he did. He said, those that took the effort, those that paid the price, I'm going to tell you something, and I'm not telling those other people. You see, there's a developing of intimacy between Jesus and his followers. Those who climbed with him. Now, look at the problem of traditions that Jesus was facing. Because Jesus lived in a religious world. I mean, it was full of religion. The first group that he had to deal with were the Pharisees. The Pharisees are best described by the song in Fiddler on the Roof. Tradition. We want tradition. We want to not only have the law, we want to add 600 laws to the law. And we want to honor the tradition. And you will hear Jesus say through this sermon, if you read through all chapter 5, 6, and 7, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, and oftentimes he will quote a scriptural reference like out of Leviticus, And then he will add what the Pharisees added to it. You see, the Pharisees didn't believe what God said was enough. And so they felt like they had to add to the Word of God to help people understand this box that they were supposed to live in. And and I love the song by Wayne Watson where Wayne says, God ain't going to stay in the little box you put him in. And the Pharisees wanted to put God in a box. They wanted him nice and neatly packaged and organized and systematic. And a lot of us like God that way. We want God to be predictable, rational, reasonable. And God is rational. But God is supernatural, and he makes us walk by faith. And the Pharisees didn't want to walk by faith. Now, the Sadducees came along, and the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in the Spirit and the Sadducees were the liberals of the day. The Sadducees said, well, let's forget all the old paths, which is what a lot of people are trying to do today with throwing out everything that's old and saying, if it's old, it's not good. Listen, if it's old, it's okay. It just doesn't need to be worshipped. And they said, let's get Everything needs to be new. Everything needs to be new. Nothing old needs to be in our midst. And, and so they forsook the truth and made up their own truth. Well, we know what the Scripture says, but this is what we believe. That's where liberal theologians are today, trying to edit the Scripture, trying to... uh, Thomas Jefferson was this way. Thomas Jefferson was a deist. He was not a Christian. And Thomas Jefferson edited the Bible until he got down to what he thought Jesus actually said. I went to Williamsburg one time, and, and I met the guy who portrays Thomas Jefferson. He does an incredible job, even looks like... Thomas Jefferson. So he was standing around having a little meeting under a tree and talking to people about making this ride and going here and going there. And so I just raised my hand and asked a question, I said, why did you write your Bible? And so he got a, well, it wasn't my Bible, I was simply writing what I thought Jesus said. I said, were you there? Because the people that were there wrote down what he said. Were you there? I thought, hey, you know, this guy's playing Thomas Jefferson. He's not Thomas Jefferson. So I'll just ask him some questions. He didn't appreciate it. (laughs) But I got news for Thomas Jefferson. You know, when Thomas Jefferson died, God didn't appreciate what he did to his Bible either by editing it. Sadducees wanted to edit the scripture. Then you come to Essenes. They, they, they thought that what we do is we separate from the world. We go out and buy a supply of land. We build a big fence around it, put gun turrets on it, and then we, we stay holy by being away from unholy people. Jesus taught insulation, not isolation. Jesus did not say, remove yourself from the world, never talk to pagans, never associate with lost people. How in the world are we going to fulfill the Great Commission if we never get around lost people? kind of hard to share the gospel when you're sharing it with people who've already heard it. And so these people said that separate means holy. And so we'll get away and we won't touch this and we won't go here and we won't go there. And that's just another form of legalism. You see, Jesus lived a life to say, you can be in the midst of a sinful world, God in flesh dwelling among us, and not be tainted by that sin. And then you come to the last group, the zealots. The zealots were the revolutionaries. Now, there's nothing wrong with tradition unless you worship. There's nothing wrong with new ideas unless you throw away truth to build your new ideas. There's nothing wrong with being separate from the world unless you isolate yourself from the world and don't talk to lost people and share salt and light with them, which is what we're supposed to be. Now, the revolutionaries, the gospel is revolutionary. Nothing wrong with being a revolutionary, but let me tell you what was wrong with these people. They killed people that disagreed with them. We have people that kill doctors because they perform abortions and think it's right to murder because somebody else is a murderer. It's never right. And see, what happens is the world thinks that's the way all Christians think. That's not the way we all think. That person is just as wrong as the abortionist. Taking a life is taking a life. And it's wrong no matter whether they're in the womb or the doctor doing it. And so Jesus comes and says, I've got a better way of doing business here. I've got a better way of thinking. And so he promises us a blessed life. He looks at all these hoops everybody's jumping through, and he he says, I've got a promise for you. You can have a blessed life. Now, here we are. We've all made our New Year's resolutions, and we've all broken half of them. You know, I, I, I'm going to lose weight. Mmm, cheesecake. Ah, bless God. Tomorrow, I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to start exercising when it gets warmer. It was warmer yesterday, just not warm enough. We've all made our resolutions about what we're going to do. This is not about making a resolution to do better. This is Jesus coming to you with a full plate and saying, I have a plate of blessings to give to you. Now, do you want it or not? I just want to ask a question, see if you're awake. How many of us want God to bless our lives? Okay, pretty much all of us. You know, we don't want to live under a curse. We don't want to live in bondage. We want God to bless us. I mean, you didn't get up and say, Lord, it's 2001. I hope it's a miserable year. I just want the bottom to fall out. I want everything to go wrong. I want it. And Lord, if, if you think at any point about intervening on my behalf, just forget it. I don't know anybody who thinks that way. If they do, they're locked up in a room somewhere. But Jesus says, I want to bless you. I want you to get this picture. The Lord God of heaven sent his son to earth to die and pay the price for our sins, but he also sent him to earth to give you and me a blessed life. Now, that sounds pretty good to me. And When you read it, though, it says, man, if that's a blessed life, I'd like to get some other translation. Because it doesn't look like this would produce a blessed life, but in fact, it is the blessed life. He doesn't say, if you keep these rules, you'll go to heaven. He doesn't say this is an ideal. He says, this is a life that I am offering you, a life that I have for you, and I will give it to you if you will do it my way. Have, have you ever with your kids tried to get them to do something and they try to do it and you Do it my way. You ever have to do that with your kids? You know, the guys that write the instructions on all those things we put together at Christmas that you can't read, and you always end up with six parts in a bag that you don't really know where they go, but it seems to work without them? You know why those guys put those instructions in there? Because they want you to build it their way. God wants you to build your life His way. And He says, when you build your life on my word, and on my principles, and on my truth, and you look to me for the power to do it, then your life is going to be blessed. Now, here's a prayer that I'm praying, and I would encourage you to pray it. If you're serious about wanting God to bless you, this is a prayer that I would encourage you to pray over these weeks and even through this year. Lord, I want to be your climbing companion. Wherever you're going, I want to be there. Because I want to be close enough to hear whatever you've got to say to me. I don't want to find out about it secondhand. I don't want it. I don't want it to be hearsay. I, I want to know what you're saying to me. I want to be your climbing companion. Now, here's my admission to you. I do not have all these things figured out. That shouldn't be a shock to you. I've been here long enough. Nobody can go through the Beatitudes and say, I've got this all figured out. I know how this all works. You see, one of the problems with preaching through the Beatitudes, it's hard to get a handle on it. It's kind of like a greased pig. Just about the time you think you've got it, it slips away from you. You know, with Paul, Paul is systematic, and Paul is logical, and you can go through Paul's writing, and he writes like a Greek, and he writes like a Roman. I mean, he's process-oriented, and I can get this outline and go, boy, that's an outline. That's a good point. There's three steps of this, and five steps of this and and seven reasons for this. But you get Jesus, and he just says, blessed are the poor in spirit, and figure it out. Jesus spoke in Aramaic, and he lived in a culture where they knew that when you made a statement like that, it was a profound statement, but at the same time, it was one you had to to grapple with. It was one you had to struggle with. It wasn't a nice, easy, pat answer. You had to wrestle with your faith, and that's what God wants us to do, to wrestle with our faith, to wrestle with our understanding of what this means. We're not just supposed to go goose step into kingdom. We're supposed to walk and to struggle and to kneel and to pray and to latch on and say, God, I had not got all this yet, but this is where I want to be. Lord, I want to be your climbing companion." I don't understand everything about poor in spirit, but I know if I want to be blessed, that's where I'm supposed to be. So Lord, I, that's, if that's where you are, that's where I want to go. I just want to climb with you. And so he gives us this promise of a blessed life, and, he's, and the successful climbers are the people that make the right choices. Now, here's the problem. The problem is we may say we love him, but sometimes we don't embrace what he says. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so it's one thing to say, I love you, Lord. It's another thing to embrace what he says. And in embracing what he says, I don't just go, Lord, I love you. I'm not real sure about that one. I don't know if, you know, I'll tell you, peacemaker is not my idea of a man. You know, a real man, boy, he's ready to go to war anytime. You know, if there's a spitting contest, we're going to be there. You know, a peacemaker, that's, a, that's women. Women are peacemakers. Men, you know, we're, we're hunters. We're killers. You know, give us a gun. Let us go out and shoot something. Bring it home. We prove we're men. I don't know if I want that. But you see, loving Lord means embracing what he says. And if I love him, when he tells me this is how I'm going to be blessed, I don't argue with him. I just say, okay, I'm getting with the program. I understand what you're saying, and I'll go there. Now look at the setting of his teachings. Let's go back to verse 23 of chapter 4. Jesus has totally changed the paradigm. From all these hoops that they had people uh, jumping through, he's clearing out the clutter, and he's getting down to the basics. And I want you to see in chapter uh, 4, verse 23, that what brings this about. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Now, Jesus did not come and give them pat answers. In this setting, you find him doing some things. And by the way, I love it when the Lord works things out. Uh, the four things that happened here between chapter 4, verse 23, and chapter 5, verse 1 cover the play ball strategy for ministry. You know our play ball strategy for ministry? Home base is reaching. First base is care. Second base is teaching. Third base is training. They're covered right here. Let's look at them. You find him teaching. That's second base. Verse 23, teaching in their synagogues. Now, here's what he was doing. He was teaching the uninformed, and he was teaching the misinformed. You've heard it said, but I say to you. He was teaching them as one who had authority. And so Jesus was teaching them divine revelation about what life is really like. Then he was proclaiming the gospel. That's home plate. Telling them the good news. To proclaim means to herald or to call out. He was calling out to people who were hurting and lost and broken and in sin, saying, there's good news Good news, you don't have to live like this. These Pharisees have led you into bondage. You don't have to live like that. You don't have to go crawl off in a hole somewhere. You can live a godly life in this world, and I'm here to show you how. Proclaiming good news. Then it says that he was healing people. That's first base. He was involved in caring for people. Jesus didn't just walk along and say, Now, I've got a book of doctrine here that I want to teach you. His doctrine was blended together with his compassion. You cannot have biblical compassion without biblical doctrine, and you can't have biblical doctrine without biblical compassion. They have to go together. You have truth with spirit, and the church cannot look on a lost and hurting world and say, well, it's not our problem. They got themselves in this mess, they can get themselves out of it. Jesus healed people as they were brought to him, demoniacs, epileptics, paralectics, He he healed them all of various diseases and pains. Then you come to the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, and that's third base. He's training them. He's training them. Now, this is the first of five discourses in the gospel. In fact, there's more preaching from the lips of Jesus in, in Matthew's gospel than any other gospel. There's a instruction in John 14, 15, 16, and 17, and a prayer, but this is the most preaching that you get from Jesus in any of the Gospels. The Old Testament, let's just get a little background here, the Old Testament is a book of the generations of Adam. Remember Paul talks about that there's a first Adam and a second Adam? The, the Old Testament is the generations of Adam, but when Jesus shows up, Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus to show that he was the Messiah, to show that he was a promised one, and he goes all the way back into the Old Testament and he brings it all the way up to the current and he says, and this is the Messiah, the generations of Jesus Christ. Because everything changes, the second Adam, when Jesus shows up on the scene. This Adam didn't blow it. This Adam did not sin. This Adam did not fall. This Adam lived a holy and pure life, the second Adam, so that we might be saved. So Matthew presents him as God's king, as God's king. Now, in chapters 1 through 4, he presents the person of the king. In chapters 5 through 7, he presents the principles of the king. This is the way the king wants us to live. And in chapters 8 through 10, he presents the power of the king. And the king had power over disease and over demons and over death. And so he comes to us with these words for believers, for climbers, and he tells us how he wants us to live. Now notice, if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 28, because this is how the crowd was impacted. The crowd didn't look and go, oh, I Nice little sermon, G-rated sermon. It says in Matthew 7, 28, When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. For there were a lot of people teaching in that day, but they didn't have the power that Jesus had. They didn't have the authority that Jesus had. Listen, everything changes when Jesus shows up whether it's disease or demons or death, whether it's teaching or proclaiming the gospel or healing the sick, whatever it is, when Jesus is on the scene, everything changes. When Jesus is allowed to speak and when his people listen in church, everything changes in that service. He changes everything. Now, look at the application. Because these people were tired of religion. I mean, they were tired of religion. I don't know about you, But I want more God and less religion. I mean, we got enough religion in this country to choke a horse. We don't need any more religion. What we need is a good dose of New Testament relationships with Christ that change people not just at church, but change people in day-to-day living. These people were tired of religion, they were tired of hypocrisy, they were tired of the Pharisees parading through the streets, throwing their coins in the jars. Throwing it. They had, they had, in fact, the, the scholars say that the Pharisees had such a wrist action that they could throw it and make sure it would go around and around and around so that you would hear it and they would make it sound like it was more than it really was. The Pharisees strutted through the streets of Jerusalem. They strutted through the cities. They walked in the synagogues like they were somebodies. And Jesus said, I want to tell you who the somebodies are. The somebodies are the people who are poor in spirit. They're the people who say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner." That's who somebodies are. And people were tired of this facade and this religion and this hypocrisy. And Jesus did not come and add more commands with this beatitude, these beatitudes. He said, these are choices you can make. You can continue to live under the bondage of the Pharisees and tradition and all this baggage that's been added to your life, you can continue to try to perform up to a level where somebody will say, you finally arrived, or you can get rid of the baggage and travel light and go with me. You ever notice that nowhere in the Bible does it say Jesus and his disciples and their 37 18-wheelers went down the road? He just walked from place to place, didn't own a house, didn't own a car, didn't own anything, had to depend on the favor and the blessings and the kindness of other people to get around. Jesus traveled light. We travel with a lot of stuff. And what he's trying to get us to do is to get down to, let's just simplify life. Life has become so complicated, let's get it simple. And so there are two things that I need to work on and I would suggest all of us need to work on. Number one is I need God's perspective. I need God's perspective. You know, you can watch enough television and listen to enough radio and, and, and read enough in the, in the press and, and in magazines and stuff that, that your, your view of life becomes skewed and you become cynical. and, and You get distorted and and Jesus simplifies life and life has become so complicated for us and and so complex for us and and we're so overwhelmed by life and it's like a train coming at us and we don't have any way to stop it. And, And Jesus says, get God's perspective. What's important to him? Not only do I need to get God's perspective, but I need to live what I say I believe. It's not about just coming to church on Sunday. It's not about uh, singing a few songs about the Lord. It's about living out my faith. It's It's saying I will not segment my life into sacred and secular. I will live my life in the awareness of the presence of God in everything I do, at work, at home, at school, out in the community, in the mall, at church, That my life is not segmented and fragmented. My life is viewed as a whole. And so the Beatitudes teach us how to live that kind of life. And the first thing you realize by reading the Beatitudes is, I can't do it. I can't do this. You see, the great thing about this is that it makes us admit our inadequacy and confess God's sufficiency. I'm inadequate. I I want to tell you, the last thing I do when I get persecuted is rejoice and be glad. You know, I mean, if if I get some shot over my bow, my first response is not, praise God, another critic. But that's the way Jesus says we're supposed to live. I, I... you know, blessed are the peacemakers? I mean, my dad taught me. I was, I was raised right, right. Son, somebody steps on your turf, you back them down. If somebody gets in your way, you draw your line, you say, dare you to cross, get across it, and you get across it, and me and you and Jesus are going to have a talk, and me and Jesus are going to be the only ones left when we get through. Peacemaker? Sounds so weak. I mean, this goes against the grain of the way we think. This goes against the grain of our culture. This world is pushing us and pushing us and pushing us, and we want to push back. And we have to be more aggressive than the world, but we have to be aggressive in the right ways and in the right areas. Now, the Greek word blessed means spiritual well-being or prosperity. It's the presence of a deep and abiding joy in the soul. The Greeks had an island, the island of Cyprus. This was not the island that Tom Hanks landed on in Castaway. In the island of Cyprus, they said the island of Cyprus was called Happy Island because on Cyprus they had all the natural resources and minerals and amenities that at that time anyone would ever need to be happy and content. It was said if you lived on Cyprus, why would you want to go anywhere else? Because on Cyprus you had everything everybody wanted. And so when the Greeks used this term, they said you are blessed when you live on Cyprus. Oh, if I could just live on Cyprus, some of us think, Oh, if I could just live on the beach. Oh, if I could just live in the mountains, I'd be blessed. If I could just live here, if I could just have this, I'd be blessed. The Greeks said, if you could be on Cyprus, you'd be blessed. Jesus said, if you have this life, you'll be blessed, no matter where you are. And so I want to give you three words that describe this word, blessed. Sufficiency, satisfaction, satisfaction. And security When I'm blessed, I trust in the sufficiency of God. My God shall supply all my needs according to His riches in Christ Jesus, not my riches, His riches. He's responsible. I depend on His sufficiency. Satisfaction. Paul said, "I've learned in whatever state I'm in, he wasn't talking about Georgia. So I've learned in whatever state I'm in to be content and security. We have security systems and we double bolt our doors and we still don't feel safe. And the other night, uh, our power went off in the middle of the night, and uh, I, I I could hear something. And when our power goes off, everything else seems to go off. And and I could hear, and I heard a policeman, our, because our security system calls the police when our power goes off, and I heard a policeman and I could hear the little, i looking for the broken glass. <laughs> and I'm, I'm laying in bed thinking, he could shoot me. And I'm frozen. But I want you to know, it makes me feel pretty secure that if my alarm goes down, that a police officer shows up at my house and checks it. He walked the whole property. Walked around, looked at all, checked the doors, checked the windows, looked around the whole thing. I felt pretty secure because he was closer to his gun than I was to mine. And I figured, if somebody's broken my glass, I want a guy that knows what he's going to hit when he aims (laughs) instead of me. But you see, when Jesus says we're blessed, he says that you have satisfaction and security and sufficiency. I've done funerals where I've been able to say about somebody, they had a blessed life. They lived a blessed life. I want to tell you something, folks. That's what God wants for every one of us, is a blessed life. God wants every one of us to live a blessed life. God wants us to walk in the fullness of his blessings. And these are rewards that he promises us, and he he promises us life. What he's saying is, when you come to me, you don't have to go outside of me to find sufficiency, satisfaction, or security. I will provide everything you need for your life. Because he's rich. He's the king. Now notice, he went on this mount, which is really the Mount Sinai of the New Testament. He went on this mount and he sat down in this amphitheater-like setting. And the key is he sat down. Now, in that day, when a teacher sat down, it was a position of authority. You didn't stand up behind a podium in a position of authority in the Eastern culture. You sat down. And when you sat down, it was an exclamation point. When you came to the point where you were ready to drive everything home and to say, now you listen to this above everything else, the teacher would sit down. And that meant, I better get this, because this is important. When the Pope speaks to the Catholic Church, he speaks ex cathedra, which means out of the chair. When the Pope makes a proclamation that is to become dogma for the Catholic Church, he speaks ex cathedra out of the chair. When Jesus spoke with authority, which is, by the way, where the Pope got the idea, which is Jesus spoke with authority, he sat down. He would sit down in the boat and teach them. He would sit down at breakfast to teach them. And when he sat down, they understood something. Uh-oh. I better get my pen and pencil out. This one's going to be good. We're not talking about whether we're going to get Happy Meals or Whopper Juniors. We're talking now about serious stuff. So I am going to listen. Psychology Today did a study on what is happiness and where do you find it? They concluded that most people didn't know. Duh. One guy sent his questionnaire back and said... I think I'm happy. I don't know. Please verify what you mean by happy. This is the way psychology today described happiness. People pursuing happiness today are like people who are trying to catch a black cat in a darkened room at midnight, but they're not sure the cat's even in the room, although they're trying to chase him. And isn't that the people that you go to work with every day, and the people that are building houses and driving cars? I mean, they're just—they're chasing something, and they don't even know what they're chasing. I mean, they're going after it. You know, they've got—they open up their wallet, and they got more credit cards than there are pine trees in South Georgia. And they got this credit card to pay off that credit card, which paid off the credit card before that one, and paid off the credit card before that. Well, why did you buy all that stuff? Well, because my neighbors have it. Uh-uh, because it was on sale. Because it was there. And you know what happens? We're coming right out of Christmas. Everybody opens their presents and goes, oh, 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 And two weeks later, it's stuck in the closet. And a year later, it's at the garage sale. And you hope the people that gave it to you don't show up at the garage sale. And all the while we thought, if I get that, I'll be happy. And man is running back and forth and back and forth trying out, how can I be happy? How can I be blessed? How can I be fulfilled? Jesus says, I'll tell you how you do it. It begins with being poor in spirit. These are rungs up a ladder, by the way. You don't get to rejoicing over persecution until you first handled being poor in spirit. And so it's a ladder. We're climbing all the way through this. And tonight... We're going to pick up poor in spirit and find out what it means to be poor in spirit. And I I want to tell you, if you ever want an explanation of what it means to realize that you're a sinner, then you have to realize what it means to be poor in spirit. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Would you just pray right now, Lord, help me to be a climber. I want to be your climbing companion. I want to go where you're going. I want to listen to what you have to say to me. And some of you may be here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior and you can't live by the golden rule and be saved. I've heard people say, Well, I don't believe in church, and I I don't believe in organized religion, but I try to live by the Sermon on the Mount. You cannot live by the Sermon on the Mount apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't do it. Sooner or later, you're going to want to get even with somebody. Sooner or later, you're not going to want to be a peacemaker. Sooner or later, you don't want to be gentle. You can't do it. Only the Holy Spirit of God can empower you to do this. If you're trying your best to live right so you can get to heaven, you will fail. You will fail. Paul said, I was great, man. They started reading the law to me, and I said, Hadn't broken that one, hadn't broken that one, hadn't broken that one. And he says, When I got to the one thou shalt not covet, it got me. And every one of us are guilty of breaking the law. The law says thou shalt not covet. To covet means I want something somebody else has got. And every one of us have at some point in our lives coveted something or someone. And if you break part of the law, you break all the law. And the law says we're sinners. The law says apart from grace we can't be saved. You can't save yourself. You can't fix yourself. You can't work harder and become poor in spirit. God has to do that in you and for you. So if you are here today, You've never trusted Christ as your personal Savior or you've tried to help Christ along. It is by grace that you are saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. You can't do it yourself. And we want to offer you an opportunity today to come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, to find His sufficiency, to find His security, to find the satisfaction you've been looking for on your own and in religion, to find it in a relationship in the person of Jesus Christ.